Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Hey everyone, uh, Pastor Andrew here. I hope you're doing well today. It's great to be with you wherever you're listening or watching this. Um, I just uh, am so thankful to spend these few minutes together with you. We have been uh, taking time to dive into the book of Ephesians and today we are continuing in this series that we've been in for quite a while. I wanna dive right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, But today's message is called Gifted for Battle. And the reality is, as we've looked through the book of Ephesians so far, in chapter one, sort of the high-level synopsis of chapter one, is Paul explaining who God is, the reality that our world is broken, but that God hasn't given up on us. And in fact, not only has God not given up on us, He's had a plan since before the foundation of the world. In Ephesians 1, he says that we've been chosen and called and predestined, that that he actually has a solution for the brokenness of the world. And some of you just need a reminder of that today. You need a reminder that God has a plan in the midst of your life, in the midst of whatever the season is for you. It could be a season of great struggle or pain or brokenness that in the midst of all of that, God still has a plan. He still has um, a goodness that he can work out. In fact, in Romans 8, it says God can take everything the enemy's meant for evil and turn it to good. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, this reality of who God is and of who we are, the truth that the world is broken and it is a crumbling all around, but that God has a plan and a strategy. A Jesus is the central figure of God's strategy. That's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, Paul is reminding us of who we are without Jesus, what life is like without Jesus, and the primary pulls in our life um, the, the influences, the things and the powers and the spiritual forces that influence us away from Jesus. But he reminds us again of what Jesus has done and who we are in him, and not only who we are in him, but that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. The, the big overarching theme of chapter two is that we have a new access spiritually to God because of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And not only do we have a new access, we have a new perspective. So Paul has been walking through uh, the people in Ephesus, the churches in Ephesus, these big kind of ideas. He's got a plan for your life. He's created you for a purpose and a calling. He's predestined you, he's gifted you, all of these things. The world is broken, yes, but God has a plan to use you. Students, if you are in high school, God has a plan to use you. University students, in the workforce, and as you're heading out into that season of life, God has a plan to use you. Parents, God has a plan to use you in your home in your workplaces and in the church as we're gonna talk about today. And in chapter four, which is the chapter we're in, 
Paul is urging us to live up to that calling that God has placed on our lives. He is saying, look, you, you, you have to intentionally live up to it. We have a life mission is essentially what Paul is saying in chapter four. We have a life mission that can only be accomplished through the identity we have in Christ and the access we have to him in the spiritual realm. So let me just say that again. Chapter four, Paul says we need to live up to our calling and that we have a mission for our life. God has given you and created you with a mission. You have an assignment from God on your life. You carry purpose. Some of you need to hear that today. You carry purpose from God. He has a specific calling and assignment for your life that can only be accomplished through your identity in Christ and the access you have to him in the spiritual realm. Paul is about to kind of say to us that this gifting that he's about to explain to us, this gifting from God is essential because we need a united effort to confront the damages of sin and the destruction of the enemy in our world. You have a calling, you have a purpose, and not only that, Paul is about to teach us that God has gifted you for that calling and that purpose. He hasn't left you to kind of figure it out and MacGyver it on your own. You remember that show, MacGyver? I used to love that show. He could make uh, a, you know, a bomb out of a Q-tip and duct tape kind of thing. He could always get out of wherever he was, but. God actually, with the calling and purpose he's given you, he's given you gifts to actually accomplish it, which is amazing. Paul is emphasizing unity in chapter four. Why? Because he knows what's coming. He knows that a primary tactic of the enemy is to undermine our relationships, to cause division and hurt and anger and unforgiveness to cause conflict in our lives through our, our families and our marriages and in the church. And Paul knows that these uh, believers in Ephesus are about to run through the gauntlet and they'll be tested and this area of testing will manifest itself in their relationships. And so that's why he tells them that they need to walk in humility, in, in deep character transformation, in gentleness and patience, and the easy thing for us to do is expect someone else to carry those attributes, but then give ourselves a pass when we don't. And Paul is saying, look, you have to intentionally invest time and energy into stewarding the character of Christ, because that character of Christ is gonna be essential to keep unity in your family, in your marriage, in the church. And Paul goes on to say these seven one statements. And basically he's saying, we're in it together. We're empowered by the same spirit. And then it's kind of like a, a, a question he's asking them, where is your hope? We have one hope and that's in Jesus. But, but today you, you may find that you've been placing your hope in relationships, placing your hope in your bank account, placing your hope in your influence or your work position or your title, placing your hope in so many things. And so Paul is saying, we, we actually just have one hope 
And so it forces us to ask, where else are we placing our hope if it's not entirely in Christ? And then he says, yes, we have one Lord. And again, that begs us to ask the question, what is actually ruling our life? Maybe you're ruled by sex or by pleasure. Maybe you're ruled by money or by comfort. Maybe you're ruled by power or security or dominating other people. And Paul is saying there's only one Lord. So take time to to actually take stock and examine this different stuff in your life. Teenagers, again, examine in your life. Take a moment to stop and say, God, where am I being pulled? What are the directions that I'm being pulled in and tempted toward? I only want to serve you, Lord. I want you to be Lord over my whole life. You know, there's a popular saying in Christianity. I don't know who started it, but, you know, if the Lord is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And there's something in that that we need to reconcile with and and wrestle with. So who do you serve? Who's your master? Just look back at your week. Just look back at your month and allow the Holy Spirit to actually just bring some conviction. Who are you serving? Is it Jesus or is it all of this other stuff? You serving fear or anxiousness in these days? And what is dominating your life and your attention? This is what Paul is basically calling us to to kind of reorient our whole life and to look up to God as the source of everything in our life. And he's moving now into a section where he's about to remind us that God has designed us to do this stuff together. And I want to read with you this next a verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, chapter 7. This is what Paul has to say. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So I just want to stop there for one moment. Paul is saying that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God's gifting isn't given to just a few people. God's gifting and the gifts that you need to live out your calling. God doesn't just give a few people those and the rest of us just hobble along. Everyone receives at least one gifting from God that is essential to your ability to walk out his calling on your life, to each one. So Paul is saying this to the community of Christians in Ephesus. And I think um, we don't want to make a hard and fast rule here, but it would be like Paul sitting down and, and talking to you today and saying, look, God has given you at least one of the gifts that I'm about to list. And, uh, you know, back in the first century, they didn't have Twitter or uh, he didn't, Paul didn't shoot a TikTok video uh, with this church in Ephesus describing these gifts and then send it to the Corinthian church. Um, This, I think, Paul, what he's saying here is all of you here will encompass at least one of these gifts because there is a, a measure of leadership that God has given you in your life. Notice how he says it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we can't earn it. 
but there's a measure there. Some of us are called to lead at different levels. We have different measures of gifting. But I think that Paul would say, and I would say, that every one of us is called to exercise spiritual leadership in some capacity. There is no example of New Testament Christianity where people aren't leading other people. There's no example of Lone Ranger Christians just keeping their faith to themselves and never discipling someone else. There's no example of that. And so I believe part of what Paul is saying is that God is about to, um, to God has poured out these gifts. They are necessary in the church. And all of you have at least some measure of at least one of these. All of you have been given something from God for your life. And not just for your life and your calling, something that is absolutely essential for the rest of the body. You bring something to the table that everyone needs. You matter. You have a purpose in the movement forward of the church. So we all have a gift and we all have a measure of leadership. Your measure may not be to lead a church, Maybe your measure is to lead a connect group. Maybe your measure of leadership is to lead in your home. Maybe your measure of leadership is to, to gather with a few close friends. Either way, you have a measure of leadership. And I believe that all of us together would at least have some measure of one of these gifts and maybe more of them. The other thing I wanna note about these gifts, they're coming from Christ to us. There is a spiritual reality to these gifts and a natural reality. Remember how we've talked about in this book, the book of Ephesians is a masterclass in the interplay between the spiritual realm and the natural realm. So what Paul is saying is there's a spiritual component that comes from God and joins together with our natural DNA propensity, our natural tendencies, our natural attributes of character, our natural leanings, that God joins these two together and the combination of those two become an effective tool in our, our kingdom mission, our life's mission. They're spiritual and natural. And some people have endeavored through the years to strip all of these gifts of their spiritual nature. They boil all of these down to, you know, the, the office of man, to something that could be accomplished through your gifting and your DNA and your character. And I believe that actually grieves the heart of God. These giftings uh, join with your natural propensities and giftings, but there is an essential, supernatural, spiritual component still alive today in these giftings that's necessary for their effectiveness. So they're both spiritual and natural in their characteristic. It's not just one or the other. Paul goes on to say, or it says, and he, this is like a bit of a digression, but what he's doing here is he's about to set up 
why we have these gifts. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean? This is uh, verse nine. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. So what in the world is Paul talking about? This has... um, This uh, passage has caused great struggle and difficulty uh, through the last few thousand years as Bible scholars and interpreters try and wrestle with what exactly Paul is meaning. Um, But I want to just draw a few conclusions from this. Paul is actually quoting from the book of Psalms here. Psalm 68 specifically is what Paul is quoting from. And that Psalm, we're going to read a little part of it, but that Psalm talks about Yahweh as a victorious God of war who goes and vanquishes the enemy, plunders him, and brings back the spoils of war on behalf of Israel. It's a conquering uh, God. This Psalm 68 is about the tensions of, of warfare and battling, but the reality that Yahweh, that God, is a conquering king. And this is the whole theme of the book of Ephesians, that we are in a spiritual battle. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and spiritual forces. Psalm 68 talks about that. So what what is Paul exactly getting at? There's Really, there's four kind of primary schools of thought around this, and I don't want to dive really far into that, but... Some scholars believe what Paul is talking about here and referencing here is uh, we can boil this whole section down to um, God, to Jesus uh, through the work of the cross while he was sort of on that Easter weekend uh, after he had died, going down into the underworld and defeating the power of the devil the kingdom of darkness. So that's one sort of interpretation of what's happening here. Another interpretation of what's happening here is that this is the incarnation. So talking about Jesus coming down uh, and the language of the earth, uh, some people believe that that's the incarnation or the birth of Christ. Some other people believe that it's the uh, the release of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that that's the the coming down to earthness of this. And other people believe, um, based on a reading from uh, the book of 1 Peter, that uh, Jesus did go to the underworld, but that he was actually preaching to to people down there uh, so that they could actually accept him and receive salvation. Now, again, there's been a lot of debate about this, and I don't think that we need to dive into that, but it does seem to me that two are most plausible. I think that either this is really leaning toward the underworld theme where um, Jesus goes down and he conquers the kingdom of darkness, the demonic realm. And uh, one of my favorite scholars for the book of of Ephesians is Clinton E. Arnold. And he says this, the underworld themes were prominent in Ephesus and Western Asia Minor, where Ephesus was, where a variety of underworld deities were worshiped. 
most prominent, so the prominent uh, uh, worship of underworld deities in that first century from the people in Ephesus was the goddess Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft and sorcery. And she was revered as the goddess of the underworld. Hecate wielded, get this, she wielded the keys of Hades. Okay, so she was a revered and feared as the primary goddess of the underworld. And one of the possibilities of what Paul is saying here is that Christ went down and, and he, uh, he conquered the kingdom of darkness. He defeated Hakate and took the keys from the underworld from her. The other um, interpretation that I think is plausible and possible is that this is a, uh, ultimately Paul is talking about a reference here to the work of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he pours out. But I want to just have you turn with me to Psalm 68. So I'm just going to turn there real quick because there are, are some things in here that are kind of running under the surface that are, I think, important for us to understand. All right, so we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Mount Bashan is God's towering mountain. Mount Bashan is a mountain of many peaks. All right, I just want to stop there for a moment. Uh, the region of Bashan in the Old Testament, when this was written, the region of Bashan in the Old Testament was the central location of the kingdom of darkness. That was the region of the underworld, of death and the kingdom of darkness, of the demonic realm. So David, who's writing Psalm 68, says, actually, that region, you may think, is controlled by the devil. You may think that he has absolute sovereign rule in that kingdom of darkness, but God is actually the God of that place too. All right, this is important, what Paul is about to link together. And uh, that song keeps going on, and, and David says, you ascended in verse 18 to the heights Taking away captives, you receive gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord might dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, day after day he bears our burdens, the God of our salvation. In verse 21, there's an interesting reference. Surely God crushes the heads of his enemies, the hairy brow of the one who goes on in his guilty acts. That word for hairy brow in there is really kind of weird. Um, but in the Hebrew, it could actually mean demon. And uh, David actually could be looking beyond the natural and actually literally saying here, God crushes the heads of the demonic realm, which is precisely what Paul is talking about. The area of Bashan was ground zero for demonic activity. The very geography of that place was known to the ancient world as ground zero for the kingdom of darkness. And what is being said here in Psalm 68 and was being said by Paul in this. We can boil this all down to say the overarching point that Paul is making is that there's nowhere Jesus's reign is not established. There is no place in the natural or in the supernatural, in the heavenly places, in the underworld. There's no place his reign and his rule is not established. 
So you and I do not need to walk in fear. Not only that, Christ's rule is absolute and all-sufficient and all-filling of all places, and he gives us the very tools we need to carry out our life's mission and kingdom assignment. What Paul is saying here is you have a life's mission. You have a kingdom assignment. There's a purpose for your life. And it's to join together with the body of Christ and actually destroy the work of the enemy in your life, in your family, in your workplace, in our church, in our streets and community, in our government areas, that there is a spiritual battle that he's equipped you for. Because Jesus is Lord even of the deepest, darkest, most disturbing places. It's interesting that this idea of Jesus holding the keys and go, going and defeating sort of the principalities and powers of the underworld is found in Revelation. John, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. This is Jesus speaking. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Matthew 16, 17 to 19. It says, Jesus also, this is a very famous passage, saying to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So we've got the same language here as Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4 that Paul is referencing. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that Christ has already accomplished the victory. There's no place outside of his rule. And more than that, because he's defeated the principalities and powers of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, the devil and every demon found in hell, because he's defeated them all, he's actually stripped them of their authority and their power. And he's taken what uh, the resources of the kingdom of darkness and transferred it to the kingdom of light. And he's given you a calling and not only calling, a gifting. He's given you a capacity to walk in the kingdom of heaven on earth, not some time in the future, but to establish the rule and reign of Christ in the very place you are. That's what Paul is saying in this passage in Matthew 16. Jesus is using a double entendre for the word rock there. So we just realized in Psalm 68, David is talking about the region of Bashan. In Matthew 16, Jesus is standing in that very region at the foot of Mount Hermon, which was the epicenter of demonic activity in the Old Testament and leading into the New. Jesus is standing literally at the gates of hell. Everybody knew it around him. All of the disciples knew it. Everybody knew that geography, that rock that Jesus was standing on was literally the gates of hell. And he says to Peter, on this rock, Peter's name meant rock, this is the double entendre, through your life, Peter, and in this place that is literally the gates of hell, I will establish my kingdom and there's nothing the devil can do to overpower me. 
There's no darkness, no power of the, of the devil or of the enemy that can overpower Christ in you. He's greater in you than he who is in the world. There's nothing that the devil can counteract with when we walk in the light, as we talked about last week. When you walk in repentance and humility and confession and you're current with God in that, there's nothing that the devil can do. John 1, verse 1 to 5, ends with, you know, that Jesus in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shone in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Jesus standing in the very gates of hell says the kingdom of God is on the offensive. The gates, gates in, um, you know, in these uh, metaphors were not an offensive tool. They were a defensive tool. God is saying the kingdom of God is the, is the kingdom on the offense, not the opposite. So what Paul is saying is that God has gifted you. You have a calling, you have a life's mission, you have an assignment from him, and it's not to sit on your heels and just take shots from the enemy. It's not to wallow in self-pity and defeat and just wait for the sweet by and by. What Paul is saying is God has gifted you. He's called you. You have an assignment and a mission. You're called to join together arm in arm with the body of Christ. You're called to contribute your part, not to sit on the sidelines, not to be a consumer, not to just wait for everybody else to do it. You have a divine gifting from him to accomplish the purposes offensively of the kingdom of God in your life. The question is, are you living that way? Are you a contributing part of the body of Christ? Jesus equips us for the spiritual war that we are in. This is all warfare analogy that Paul is using in chapter four. So the overarching point of that sort of confusing passages, verses seven to nine, is that there's nowhere that Jesus' reign is not established. There's nowhere. There's nothing in your life that you will ever face that Jesus is not able to give you victory over. There's nothing in your life that the enemy can throw at you that Jesus cannot turn to good. There's nothing. That's the amazing message of the gospel. He's Lord even of the powers of darkness. And these gifts that he's given us are weapons for the field of battle. That's what exactly you know, Paul is talking about 1 John 3, 8, Jesus came to destroy the works of the enemy. So when we walk in the light with God, in repentance and humility, and we exercise uh, that practice of living in the light with God, as we read last week from 1 John, we have unity with each other. When we have unity with each other, we bring all of the gifts Paul is about to mention and more. Paul talks about more gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. When we bring these gifts together, there is nothing that can stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is saying. And so his question to us is, are you on mission? Are you in? Or are you sitting on the sidelines? I heard of a church that, that did a survey 
in their church and in their community. And the number one response back from the people of what they wanted from the church was a place they could come where there was no requirement for them to do anything. <laughs> they just wanted to come, consume some stuff, and walk out with no responsibility. That kind of Christianity and faith is nowhere to be found in the Bible and in the New Testament. You all have a measure of leadership that God has given you. You have a capacity that Christ has given you. Each one of you, as Paul says in this opening part of this section, the question is, are you doing your part? Are you engaging? Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 4.11, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. We're gonna spend the next uh, week, next Sunday, talking specifically about the gifts that God has given us, as seen here and as seen in uh, Corinthians 12 and as seen in Romans 12. Because what God has done is he said, I wanna combine the way that I've wired you, your natural tendencies and giftings. I wanna combine those with spiritual gifting that is spiritual in nature, supernatural in nature. I wanna conjoin the two and I wanna use you powerfully. And so my question for you, my question for me, is are you ready to get in the game? God has gifted you for battle. We are in a battle, we're in a war. Would you get off your duff <laughs> spiritually, start to take responsibility for your life, your spiritual life, your family life, the church, your community, and everything else? Would you rise up to God's call on your life God's mission for your life and say, God, I'm willing to be in. I'm willing to be a part of the team. I'm willing to contribute what you've gifted me with. Are you willing to do that? The issue is not whether you have a gift from God. It's what is it and what is the measure that he's given you? The issue is not whether victory is assured or not. Christ has defeated all powers and principalities and rulers. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, the darkness cannot overcome. There's nothing that you could possibly face that God does not have an address or an answer for. So are you ready? I wanna give you this week to think about that. I'm not even gonna dive into these gifts right now. We'll unpack these next week. But I wanna give you this week to just ponder that question. High school students, are you ready to begin living out the calling of God, his mission assignment for your life? Are you ready to contribute to the body? Men and women who are retired, are you ready to actually step out of your spiritual retirement and get invested. Uh, families, are you ready to contribute to be a part of the body? Maybe you've been going to church for decades, but you haven't actually stepped in to the battlefield. What Paul is saying here is that God is looking for generals on the field of battle and he's gifted you 
to be a part of his kingdom assignment on the earth to destroy the work of the enemy. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. And even today as we just process and ponder, maybe for some of us, we're not even convinced that we have a gift from God or even if we believe we might have it, we might think it is so small and insignificant that it's not worth even using. Maybe there's some of us today who are not even sure what their gifts might be. I just ask, Holy Spirit, for your ministry this week in our hearts and in our lives. I I ask, first of all, that you would provoke something in our heart that would call us up to live a life worthy of the calling we have, that you would renew and provoke in us our sense of purpose and destiny and calling, that you would remind us that God has a plan, that through Jesus and the spiritual access that we have to the kingdom of God, we can walk in victory in the darkest of days. Father, I pray that you would just just stir us today to want to respond, yes, Lord. Even if I've not, you know, been faithful with the last five years, one year, 20 years, yes, I will be faithful now to get involved. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would minister to us all this week. Call us out. Call us up in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.